Kia and welcome to Goodfellow Podcasts. This episode is kindly supported by the Auckland Faculty of the Royal New Zealand College of General Practitioners. I'm Dr Louise Kugler, a specialist GP, and today I have Dr Cathy Stevenson with me as my guest to discuss how to have a conversation about sex with our younger patients. Cathy is a fellow of the Royal New Zealand College of General Practitioners and a part-time GP at Maori Ora Student Health Service at Victoria University in Wellington. She is a senior clinical lecturer at Otago University on sexual violence and partner violence, and for a number of years has worked at MedSec as a forensic medical examiner at Wellington Sexual Assault Service. Kathy is a health columnist, writing weekly columns for Stuff up until 2020, and now authoring a youth health column for the New Zealand Doctor magazine. More recently, Kathy has taken on the role as clinical lead Southern at the college, and most of her learning from youth health and wellbeing has come from conversations around the family dinner table with her wonderful young people in her life. Kathy, welcome to the podcast. Kira Louise, thank you so much for having me. It is an absolute privilege to be part of the wonderful Goodfellow podcast series. Kathy, today we're talking about things relating to sex in our younger patients. For some clinicians, this conversation could be a little bit tricky. But before we get into the how-to part of the podcast, I wonder if you can give us some numbers to put things into context for our listeners. So are all young people having sex or is this just a myth? And what do we know about the numbers in New Zealand? That is absolutely a myth, Louise. Um, and I think it's a really good one to get out there up front, actually. Um, and look, lots of the numbers and data that we'll be discussing in the next little while come from the Fantastic Youth 19 series of surveys. Um, and these are surveys that have happened since 2001 across New Zealand secondary schools, where they survey thousands of young people. So the latest Youth 19 data is from 2019. Um, and that information showed us that, interestingly, only 21% of secondary school students say that they have ever had sex. And that number has actually dropped from 2001 to 2019. I think originally it was around 26% of young people, and it's now dropped to about 21%. So, you know, really only around one in five of that age group are going to be sexually active. Now, obviously, it's actually more likely to be happening in the 17 and 18-year-olds there at secondary school, as opposed to those junior secondary school students. And if you look at the numbers that said they have, um, you know, are currently sexually active, that's around 13% of young people at secondary school. So, you know, I, I think it is, you know, it's the minority whatever age you're looking at at secondary school. So I think a really important message for us as GPs is that we don't make assumptions that every young person sitting in front of us is in a sexual relationship or actually has ever had sexual contact with anybody. Thanks, Kathy, for those numbers. That put things into context for us quite nicely. Thinking about how young people view sex, sexuality, perhaps the fun side of sex, the exploratory side of sex, the sunny side of sex, what do young people think about? sex and sexual activity? Well, one of the really, I think, amazing things that impresses me with young people today compared to when I was growing up way back in the 70s and 80s in the UK is that young people are really open about sex in conversations. And I think they're quite open with each other, you know, particularly talking in their friendship groups. But they're actually really quite open often with family members, with siblings, with parents and with health providers as well. So I certainly have some very frank, open and informative for me conversations with my kids way more often than I ever would have felt able to do with my family back in the day. So I think they do certainly see it as, 
you know, an interesting topic of conversation, something they want to explore, something they want to think about, which is wonderful. And I think that has led to a far greater understanding of kind of the possibilities of sex for them, you know, the things they might want to explore, the things they might want to try, you know, and certainly a greater understanding of things like the need for informed consent from their partners than I think we ever had back in the day as well. Um, They certainly seem to be far more open and understanding and accepting as well of of things that, that we would have considered, I guess, a little less common. So things like, you know, around gender and sexuality and different sexual practices. And I think these are conversations that young people are having all the time in their groups. And certainly, um, you know, I think that they're, they're very accepting and open around those sorts of things. So thinking about young people and sex and sexuality, Kathy, how safe are our young people when they're exploring their sexuality and starting to have sexual relationships? You, you mentioned us and now there's quite a difference in the social media young people are more mobile, perhaps. What's going on there? One of the biggest things that is coming across in the data is that safety, but also good sexual health and access to good sexual health care is really linked to some of those other determinants of health. So unfortunately, we know that if young people are Māori, Pacifica, or from areas of higher deprivation across New Zealand, or from the LGBTQTI community, they're actually less likely to be safe and they're less likely to have good sexual health. So I think it's really important that when we look at safety and we look at sexual health care, that we realize it's not an equal playing field. And that unfortunately, it does depend where you live, what culture you're from and what background you're from as to what you're able to access. Now, across the board, I think it's really, really clear that young people are massively more exposed to sexual content and sexual contact with others actually via social media and obviously via internet platforms as well. And this can be a really positive learning environment for them. You know, there are plenty of young people that will use porn websites, for example, as a sex educator, and it can be useful and it can break down some of those barriers for them that they don't feel able to to ask about in other forums. But we also know that being exposed to certain types of pornography, certain types of sexual images can be very distressing, particularly for younger people. So those in the kind of 12, 13, 14 age range. We know from data that the Light Project has gathered in New Zealand over the last few years that really incredibly high rates of young people are exposed to porn. I think it's something like 75% of young people um, have viewed or do view porn on a regular basis. And most of them that has not been something they have sought out. It's actually something they've stumbled across without necessarily meaning to. And that's quite worrying because a lot of the content they're viewing is porn that is depicting non-consensual sex, sex with violence, sex where there is aggression towards women and aggression to people from particular racial backgrounds. So in a way, the young people that are viewing this are seeing this somehow as a normal way to behave within a sexual relationship. So I think in terms of safety, one of our biggest fears in the coming years is what that platform is going to be doing for young people. And there are some studies coming out of the UK and the States now that are able to link what people are viewing in these porn platforms and then what's being enacted out in their own sexual behaviors with their sexual contacts. And I think that's a really worrying trend that we're seeing happening. 
So I think there are safety issues for young people for sure. But I do also think, you know, that the young people that are able to access good health education, good health care, and have supportive adults around them who can point them in the right direction if they need it, are likely to do better. And unfortunately, we know that those young people from, you know, areas of higher deprivation, Māori Pacifica, and those from the LGBTQTI community are unfortunately likely to do worse in terms of their sexual health and also their safety. A question around that, Kathy, how can we improve access for those minority populations? Is there any data around what they feel they need or how we can make things more accessible for them? Absolutely. Youth 19, as part of their um, survey, asked young people what they wanted from their health providers. And I think the fabulous thing for us as GPs is that most young people choose to come to primary care. You know, the minority, I think it's around 2% of secondary school students that go to family planning for contraception and sexual health advice. And, and uh, you know, reasonable numbers go to school-based services or youth one-stop shops. But the vast, vast majority are seeking that kind of healthcare and information from GPs. So we are really, really well-placed to provide this kind of service and this kind of support for young people. Now, what the young people are saying is that they need that to be accessible. So it needs to be close by. It needs to be provided in a way that works for them. So in a culturally responsive and appropriate way, it needs to be low cost or free. And that's a massive issue for sexual health care across New Zealand for this age group, is if you're expecting young people to pay to come and get sexual health testing and contraception, that's just a huge barrier. So it's not going to happen. So we do need to think through how we can offer a service that is appropriate, that is accessible, and doesn't cost more than they can actually afford and is responsive to the different needs of those communities. So it's going to work for a young person who's Māori or Pacifica or LGBTQI. And I think partnering with those young people to find out what works for them is, is a really important message for us to take home. You know, asking our communities, how do you want us to provide this service? So what do you want to get from us and, and how can we help you with this? If you aren't able to provide that in a primary care setting, I think the very least that we should do in our clinics is be able to point the young people in our community to somewhere else local that can. So if you've got a local youth one-stop shop or you've got a local sexual health clinic or a local family planning clinic and it's a service that you can't provide, so for example, you're not an inserter of IUDs or implants, it's fabulous to be able to direct the young person to a local service so you're not turning them away without the very thing that they've come to talk to you about. Yes, I know we've had a, um, the Auckland DHB has just set up a free contraception clinic and it's made things so much better for our young people. No waiting time, no cost, no barriers. And we've seen a great improvement in our, in our young people's house locally because of this. It's been a really great initiative. So hopefully that's something that is going to disseminate throughout the country. There's been some really good work there. Absolutely. And, you know, the evidence around long-acting reversible contraceptives, so implants and IUDs for young people in terms of reducing unwanted pregnancy and termination rates is inarguable. They're 22 times more effective than oral contraceptives, and yet they're incredibly hard for young people to access. So I think there's something around enabling access and removing barriers to access, but also around education. So telling young people that there are contraceptives out there that work, that are safe, that are effective, and then pointing them to the place where they can go and get one is really important. So we've touched on contraceptions and you've mentioned that condom use is not what it could be. So tell us about that and contraception. So what do young people understand that they need to use both 
a contraception plus a barrier type method to keep themselves safe? What is the understanding? Well, it's interesting, Louise. We know that you know the rate of sexual activity has declined in young people over the years. But what's slightly sad sitting alongside that is actually so has the rate of condom use. So although young people are delaying becoming sexually active, when they are sexually active, they're less likely to use a condom. So I think the rates of condom usage in the Youth 2019 survey were around 41%. And a few years ago, that was sitting at 49% who said that they regularly used a condom during sex. So that's certainly an area that we need to work on. I think a lot of young people don't fully appreciate the difference between a condom, which is going to help prevent sexually transmitted infections, and contraception that is going to help prevent pregnancy. So often they will be using one and not thinking about the other. If we look at contraceptive rates, I think it's around 50% of young people say that they are regularly using contraception when they're having sex. So again, only one in two. So we've really got a lot to do in the education space there too. So that leads me on to my next question around unwanted pregnancy. So contraception not being used, what are our unplanned pregnancy numbers like at the moment? So the good news is that they are dropping. So both unwanted pregnancies in young people, but also terminations in young people are dropping and have come down quite substantially over the last five to 10 years. The not so good news is if you compare us with overseas, you know, similar countries to us, we're still sitting up there in the top 10 for these rates. So again, we've got a bit of a way to go. So we know that the rates that are dropping are likely due to those young people that are able to access effective contraception and primarily those larks that we've talked about. But we also know that the young people that aren't able to access those, particularly Māori, Pacifica young people, and those from areas of higher deprivation, are the ones where we're still seeing those unwanted pregnancies and the terminations happening. So it's great that it's coming down, but a little bit of work to do to get us you know, up to the same kind of rates that we're seeing in places overseas where access to those effective methods of contraception are easier than they are currently in New Zealand. And what about sexually transmitted infections? I recall a figure of about 50% of sexually active teenagers in South Auckland had had chlamydia. So what are the numbers at the moment and what can we do to improve? I actually tried to have a look for the numbers, Louise, and it was incredibly hard to find them, unfortunately. But what I was able to find is that, you know, young people and and actually the figures talk to the 15 to 29 year old age range. So not just kind of the under 20s, but young people in general are definitely the highest risk group for STIs across the board. And of those STIs, the most common is chlamydia and the most common viral one is HPV. But we are also seeing, you know, increasing rates of gonorrhea, syphilis, herpes across the board as well. And that's probably linked to that reduction in the rate of condoms in young people too. If you are having sex, it's likely at some point in your life, you're going to get at least one STI. You know, that is the risk in New Zealand. So it's incredibly common. Now that may be HPV or chlamydia, but it could be something more serious as well. So these are important messages to get across to our young people. And I think there's the message around prevention is better than cure. So condom use and getting the Gardasil vaccination are the messages that I give every young person that I see in my clinic. You know, reliable use of condoms and making sure that you get your full Gardasil course as early on as you can from that intermediate age are really the two top ways of preventing issues with STIs later on. Do you know the the uptake numbers of Gardasil? Do you know those numbers, Kathy? 
Well, we're sitting currently, as it, from what we can tell in New Zealand, we're sitting between 60 and 70% uptake for both girls and boys. And we are far below rates in Australia and the UK and actually in lots of the Pacific Islands as well. And to me, that's a really sad statistic because Gardasil is such a safe, effective and available vaccination. It's free. We're one of the only countries in the world that has it free for young men as well as young women. And yet somehow we're still not managing to get the message out there that this is something young people should be coming and getting. So I think the school age uptake is not particularly great. And that's when it's offered at the intermediate age, you know, that kind of 12, 13 year old group. Um, So we've got a real responsibility as GPs to check in later on when we're seeing young people, particularly if we're seeing young people without their parents, to check whether or not they had Gardasil at that age. And if they didn't, to give them a catch-up course as soon as we can. And I work at a student health service and it's extraordinary the numbers that don't even really know about Gardasil. And I suspect, you know, the parents didn't, didn't consent to them having it at intermediate school or they were away when it was offered. So they never had it at that stage. And then it's often a conversation that isn't revisited later on. So I think in primary care, we do have a role to play there to try and get the uptake closer to what we're seeing overseas, which is, you know, some of those countries are achieving 90% and above. And the World Health and Organization's target for us is the 90% mark of, of Gardasil uptake. So we've got a long way to go. And I suppose it's opportunistic screening, isn't it? So if they're coming in for an SCI check, they're having a smear test, that's a good time to check, check in on Gardasil. Absolutely. And that's a great point, Louise. I think when any young person comes in to talk about contraception, STIs, anything to do with sex at all, that's when I would be doing the whole thing. So I would then be visiting, you know, is their contraception safe? Is it the best method for them? Do they know how to use it? Would they want to consider a lark? You know, are they also using condoms? Do they understand the difference between condoms and contraceptives? And what's their sexual health like? Are they up to date with their screening? And do they know how often and when they should be screened and what they need to do to get screened? You know, I think a lot of young people are really fearful of coming in to get screened because they automatically assume that's going to involve a genital examination. Now, it might need a genital examination, but more often than not, it doesn't. And they can take the swabs themselves or it may be a throat swab or a urine sample. And it's a lot less daunting than I think young people imagine. So grabbing those opportunities to have those holistic conversations when we can is a really important step. Yes, I was made aware actually of a service that's been offered nationwide and uh, it's a private service, so it comes with a cost, but actually it's all online. There's no contact with the clinician, self-swabs, all done through the lab. And I thought, gosh, isn't that amazing? You know, for a young person who's too shy to come in, or doesn't have access, but maybe they can get it funded. It's just another way of ensuring things get done. So, you know, people are thinking laterally and and this generation is a lot more computer savvy and tech savvy and perhaps that will meet a need for some some of our patients. Absolutely. And I think there's pros and cons of those services that are available online, Louise, as well. Mm. I mean, I think clearly any sexual health checkup is better than no sexual health checkup, for sure. Um, But I think what is missing in those online services is the opportunity that we get as GPs to sit in front of a young person and look at all those other aspects of life and sex and relationships and health and wellness that all link in are all so important to how a young person feels about themselves. And that's really not an opportunity that you can explore if you're doing online testing. So although, yes, they're great and they certainly can fill a gap, I think, 
I would really prefer us to be advocating and pushing for free access to primary healthcare for young people so that they can get in front of people and we can address all sorts of things that may be going on in their lives at the same time. Absolutely. Kathy, you mentioned uh, earlier on about consent, and I just wonder, do young people sort of get the intricacies of consent? Is it taught in schools? Tell me about consent in this age group. So I think sex education does touch on consent, and some programs definitely touch on it a lot more than others. And one that ACC has rolled out over the last few years called Mates and Dates certainly is very grounded around consent for young people. And my understanding of Mates and Dates is that it starts at year nine and works through all the years of high school, building on what they have covered the year before in the Mates and Dates curriculum. So it might start in year nine with how do you negotiate, you know, who you want to sit with at lunch, you know, which group of friends you want to be with or lending somebody your laptop or your phone. And then it builds on to, you know, how do you negotiate sexual contact? How do you negotiate having sex? How do you negotiate wearing a condom? Those sorts of difficult conversations. So they are happening in sex education, but unfortunately, sex education programs are a little patchy across the country. Some schools offer more than others. And I think the impact and the effectiveness of those programs depends hugely on who the facilitator is. So young people are getting exposed to this, but they're not all getting exposed to it. And what we're hearing from Youth 19 is that often, sadly, they're not finding their sex education at schools terribly effective. And that's when they're turning to these other platforms, so online and the porn platforms, to learn about things that ideally they would be getting through those programs at school. So they do talk about consent. I think from conversations I've had with lots of young people in this forum, a lot of them understand it incredibly well and understand the different nuances of consent. You know, that consent needs to be active. It can change with time. You can't consent, for example, if you're under the influence of alcohol or drugs or you're too unwell to consent to what's being asked of you. So I think there's a really good understanding of that amongst some young people. But unfortunately, if you look at the statistics for sexual harm amongst young people, we know that that message certainly isn't across the board. And there are a lot of people out there that either don't understand the concepts of consent or feel that it doesn't apply to them at different times. Yes, that's a little bit concerning, isn't it? Absolutely. Cathy, you mentioned um, sexual preferences and practices. What do we know about our young people as far as what they're up to? So Youth 19 asked around sexuality and also around gender identity. And these figures are really interesting to me, that when they posed this question to young people, they asked about whether people were attracted to same-sex or multiple-sex others. So whether you were attracted to people of the opposite sex or the other group was same-sex or multiple-sex attracted. And in that same and multiple-sex attracted group, around 9 to 10% of young people identified as being in that group. So those are people that we might have called either gay or bisexual in the past. So in secondary school age groups, that's sitting at around 9 to 10%. If we're talking about gender diverse people, so either people that identify as trans or non-binary, that's around the 1% mark with another half to 1% questioning who aren't certain around their gender identity at the secondary school age. So really quite significant numbers, Louise. And what we know about both those groups is that, unfortunately, they are more likely still to be subject to bullying, marginalization, and discrimination 
and to feel less able to access healthcare. And that may be because their previous experiences with healthcare have not been positive. The good side of that is that the vast majority of those young people who either identify as attracted to same or multiple other sexes or identify as gender diverse or non-binary, the vast majority of those report being in a family where they are very loved and supported, which is a great thing, but they may be experiencing bullying and discrimination both in their schools and in the wider community and are almost certainly finding it harder to access good quality healthcare. All right, so we've mentioned consent, we've talked about sexual preferences and practices. What about the not-so-sunny side of sex? Thinking sexual harm, sexual abuse, what are the numbers, Kathy, in this age group? Talking about risk factors for a moment, what can you tell us? This is the really sad part of this conversation, Louise, for me, and this is an area that I have worked in for a really, really long time and have seen the huge impacts that this can have on young people. Of course, it doesn't always, but it can. And it can be really, really tragic. And the reality is that in New Zealand, we have staggeringly high rates of sexual harm. We know that one in four young women in New Zealand will experience sexual harm at some point in their life. We don't really know the figures for men, but it's probably the one in six to one in 12 mark. So these are high, high numbers. And they're numbers that don't seem to be getting better, unfortunately. If we're talking about risks, young people are particularly at risk. So about two-thirds of the people coming forward to sexual assault clinics sit in that kind of 15 to 24-year age bracket. So it's far more likely to happen at that age, unfortunately, than at any other. Other groups that are at risk include, you know, Māori young people, people from the LGBTQTI community, and those from areas of higher deprivation as well. So unfortunately, the same kind of determinants for sexual harm as are across the board in this sexual health conversation. You know, these groups are higher risk for lots of different reasons in lots of different ways when it comes to not only sexual health, but also sexual harm and abuse as well. My understanding too, Cathy, was that once you've experienced sexual harm, you're more at risk of a second or third episode. Is that, is that correct? That's absolutely correct, unfortunately. We know that if you've experienced sexual harm in the past, you're probably twice as likely, if, if not even more than that, to experience sexual harm again. And I think there are lots of factors that come into play there, some of which are that people who've experienced sexual harm are more likely to utilize risk-taking behaviors as a way of self-medicating and coping with that trauma. So perhaps more likely to be in risky situations involving alcohol, recreational drugs, multiple partners, um, in risky occupations. So the risk-taking behavior can lead to that further episode of sexual harm in the future. So if we're able to find out who has experienced sexual harm by routinely inquiring in primary care, it's an incredible opportunity to step in and provide some quite specialized support and reduce that further risk of harm for young people. Yes, and I think once again, it's just asking the question, uh, which we will talk about in another podcast, but any opportunity Absolutely. And making sure that if you ask, you do it in a way that is going to ensure their confidentiality and their privacy, because those are the top two things that young people want in any conversation around sex, but particularly around sexual harm and disclosures. They need to know that you're going to protect their information and that you're only going to ask them when it's just them in the room. So that's a key message, I think, for people is that absolutely routinely inquire about this. But make sure when you're going to routinely inquire, it's in a safe, confidential way and you know what to do with the answer 
so you know who your local specialist services are and you know how to refer to them if a young person says, yes, actually, that has happened to me. Do you have any tips or tricks about talking about sexuality, asking these questions? What have you learned over the years? What are your tips for our listeners, please? I think the first thing to say, Louise, is that, as I mentioned previously, Louise, the top thing to remember is that for a young person to feel comfortable talking about sex with a GP, they really need to be on their own. Now, of course, you know, young people who are 18, 19, 20 are likely to be coming to the GP on their own, but the younger age groups may well be coming with a parent. So really important to start setting the scene early on that having a conversation with a young person on their own is a really great thing. It's empowering for them and it enables them to start taking control of their own health and well-being. So I say to all the young people that come into me, if they happen to come in with a parent, you know, it's routine for me to have some time on my own with you during this consultation. So at some point, you know, if mum or dad is with you, we're going to ask them to leave and we're going to have a few minutes on our own to have a further conversation. And I think actually the earlier you start doing that with, you know, even teens as young as, you know, 13, 14, 15, that the easier and more comfortable they will feel in that space. So firstly, guaranteeing them some privacy. I think it's really important to put up front about confidentiality. Because again, young people won't want to start a conversation with you if they worry that once they've left, you're going to go into the tea room and tell everyone else in your team what they've talked about. So really important to say, you know, as we do with lots of our patients, but to actually say it up front, hey, look, you know, that this conversation is confidential. It's between you and me. And I will only talk to anyone else if I feel that I need to, either for your safety or for somebody else's safety. And if I'm going to talk to someone else about what we've spoken about, I'm going to let you know first so that that decision is done in partnership with them. And I think if you can do that, you will create and then maintain a really trusting relationship with that young person. And they're far more likely to talk to you about what's really worrying them concerning sex. Now, it may not be at that appointment. It may be when they come back, you know, the following month or even the month after that. But you've opened the door and laid that very trusting groundwork for that conversation to happen at some point. So I think, you know, privacy and confidentiality are absolutely key. And then I think it's up to us. If there is an obvious opening in the consultation, then absolutely grab it and run with it as a GP. So that might be a young person who wants to talk about contraception. Now, clearly, there's a really obvious opening there to ask them about their sex life, you know, to say, hey, you know, are you in a relationship at the moment? Are you thinking about having sex? Have you already had sex? You know, how was it? And to just explore things gently in that way. If they've come to ask about a sexual health checkup, really important to ask them, you know, who are you having sex with? How are you having sex? Is it safe? Is it consensual? Is there anything else you want to know about sex while you're here? And what kind of contraception and protection are you using? So any way in with a young person is is a good way in. If they're not bringing it up and a young person has come to you for something completely different, I still think there's a really important opportunity for us there as GPs to start exploring this part of a young person's life with them. We know that lots of young people don't sadly have a trusted adult that they feel able to have this conversation with. And that may be because they're from a family for particular cultural or religious or other reasons for whom that's just not a topic that they can discuss. And they may not want to talk to their friends. And their only platform may be those porn platforms that we've already talked about, where what they're seeing is really scary and distressing and doesn't fit with what they want or how they want to view sex. So as GPs, 
we've got a really great opportunity to inform the young people that we're seeing and to open up that conversation for them. So if you're used to doing the heads kind of way of of framing a conversation with young people, I would really encourage you to use that as a way in. And I view heads as less of a kind of rigid framework and and really more of of a guide for a conversation. And you can weave sex in there any way you want, really. Um, so I will often do that when I've been talking about friendships and then I might move on to relationships and then I might move on to sexual relationships. If they really seem like it's not something that they're ready to talk about, sometimes I will say, you know, hey, look, lots of other young people I see are experiencing, you know, sex or are thinking about sex or are wanting to start exploring sex or wanting to talk about contraception. Is that something that would feel right for you to talk about today? Another good way in with a young person is to talk about their friends. So sometimes I will say, you know, hey, are any of your friends having sex yet? Are any of your friends using contraception? Do any of your friends go and get sexual health checkups? And that can really normalize it for young people and assure them that A, you know that it's okay for them to be doing that, but also that that it's really normal at that age to be exploring this kind of stuff. The other thing I think that's incredibly important as a GP is that when you open the door on this conversation, that you are absolutely non-judgmental, that you are unshockable, that nothing is going to surprise you, that you're prepared for any answer you're going to get because you may hear things that you're not expecting and that's completely fine. Exploring sexuality and sex and gender and contraception and all of this stuff is entirely normal and healthy for young people and we certainly want to be encouraging them to do that and ideally in a safe way that's consensual and fun but enabling them to have the conversation I think is the first step. And I do think if you look at the numbers of young people that seek primary care as the place that they're going to get their sexual health and contraceptive advice, GPs are really uniquely placed to have a role in this space. Kathy, I wonder if you've got some tips around language. Young people are very much in the moment. So if you say to a young person, are you in a sexual relationship? Often they'll go, no, or are you sexually active? They'll say no, because Today, they're not, but last weekend seems like forever ago. So framing things, I think, is really important and language is really important. So what have you learned around those sorts of things? Absolutely. And and I would tend to use the words that young people are using to me. So if you're in a conversation and they're talking about sex, say sex. Don't talk about sexual activity or sexual contact because they may well not understand that. So absolutely, you know, using the language and the words that they have used is really important. And I think you're completely right, Louise. They won't always frame it as part of a relationship. You know, sex may be a one-off experience with someone um, and they may be completely fine with that. So talking about sex and separating it out from relationships, if that's what they're indicating is happening for them, is also really, really important. So I would ask about relationships and I would separately ask about sex as well. And I would say, you know, have you ever had sex? Have you had sex with this person more than once, you know? what kind of sex was it? And, you know, they may need you to expand on that. And you may need to say, well, look, was was it sex, you know, vagina, penis, anus, the mouth, you know, and, and show them the body parts and talk about it so that they know, again, that those things are fine. And you're asking because it's going to inform the healthcare and the advice that you can provide them with. So language is key. I don't think we should try and be too cool and use words that we wouldn't normally use at all. But I think using the words that young people are using with us is is a great first step. And on that not being too cool, 
I often have to ask my young people what they mean because they're educating me. There are things that language changes all the time. I don't know what they're talking about. And if I just nod my head and go, oh, yes, I'm actually doing them a disservice. So I often just say, hey, look, not quite sure what you mean. Can you go into a bit more detail or tell me exactly what's involved and what body parts involved? And I learn all sorts of things. It's fantastic. So yeah, it's just, again, just being professional about it, but getting the information there. Absolutely. And checking in that what they are telling you is how you're interpreting it is really important, particularly around things like contraception and STIs. You know, I find that there is often quite a misunderstanding between me as a health provider and what the young person thinks they're telling me. So checking in around that and say, hey, when you talk about, um, you know, an infection or chlamydia or something like that, what's your understanding of that? You know, what do you know about that? Um, you're telling me you need a sexual health checkup, but actually, you know, why, why, are, you, why are you telling me that? What, what's actually happened that's led you to think that? So I think it's really important to clarify what a young person is meaning in the conversation as well. Great tips there. Well, thank you, Kathy. It's been a pleasure chatting to you today. What would your take-home messages be for our listeners, please? So, Louise, it's been an absolute pleasure for me chatting to you as well. And I think my take-home messages from today would firstly be that young people are delaying the onset of sexual activity compared with their counterparts over the last 20 years, but there has also been declining use in condoms over that time. Teen pregnancy and abortion rates are dropping in this age group, but are still high compared to some other countries. So we really need to look at improving access and availability of those long-acting reversible contraceptives that we know are so effective for young people. STI testing needs to be normalized and needs to be free of any judgment, and again needs to be accessible and low cost. 9% of young people identify as same or multiple sex attracted, and 1% identify as gender diverse. And we know sadly that both of these groups experience higher rates of mental distress, self-harm, suicidality, and bullying. So it's really important with our young people, if they identify from those groups, that we're aware of what they're likely to be experiencing. Young people need to be able to access healthcare, especially sexual healthcare, that is local, low cost, culturally responsive, and meets their needs. And as GPs, I think we've got a role to play in advocating for the provision of that. And most young people seek contraceptive and sexual health advice from primary care as opposed to family planning or school-based services. So GPs are ideally placed to opportunistically initiate non-judgmental, affirmative, educative conversations around sex as part of the HEADS model. Thank you, Kathy, for your excellent advice and wisdom today. You'll find a whole lot of resources on our website, goodfellowunit.org, and also some other learning modules, gems, and med cases. Thanks for joining us today. Thanks, Louise.